Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Chris Peel, a member of the international research team here at Diamond Hill. Prior to joining Diamond Hill, Chris worked at Harris Associates, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and Morgan Stanley. He is a graduate of North Carolina Wilmington and received his master's degree from the University of Wisconsin. Chris is joining me on the podcast today to discuss the state of the global consumer coming out of the pandemic and what we could expect to see in the coming months and years. I'm actually back in the office recording this in our studio while Chris is joining me via Zoom. So it feels like we're almost back to normal, but there's always a chance of some kind of sound issue. So I ask for your forgiveness ahead of time. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Peel. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Glad you could join us today to provide your insights on the consumer and what you're seeing now that it feels like we're finally emerging from the unprecedented events of the past year and a half. So let's talk about the future by first reviewing the past and the present. How has the consumer emerged from the pandemic-induced lockdown and how is this economic slowdown unlike anything we've ever experienced in the modern era? Yeah, well, hi, Doug. Well, thanks again for having me back on uh, the podcast. Um, you know, I do think it's an interesting topic to discuss because, you know, keeping track of the health of the consumer, I think is a good way to really gauge and track the overall state of the economic recovery, you know, heading out of the crisis. Consumption, you know, as we know, accounts for the largest portion of global GDP at around 60%. You know, the rest, of course, being made up of a mix of business investment, government spending, and the net of imports and exports. You know, but generally speaking, as consumption goes, you know, so goes the economic recovery. But just to help set the stage and provide some broader context, you know, for where the consumer is today relative to how bad things got, you know, at the depths of the pandemic, you know, just a few months ago, global consumption at its worst dropped about 20% year on year, um, which was during, you know, 2Q of 2020. Obviously, some countries, you know, experienced deeper declines in this and some less. But overall, I think we could say that this was a very sharp and coordinated shock to the entire global system. And it really happened all at once. You know, just to kind of quickly put this move into context, over the last 150 years, there's been 14 global recessions on record. Um, and this COVID-19 crisis um, decline has been the third deepest overall and the worst since World War II. So, you know, this, this drop was much deeper and happened much faster you know, compared to the global, the pullback in global economic activity that we experienced in 2008 and 2009 from the global financial crisis, for example. So, you know, in the past that we've seen that, you know, during recessions and during slowdowns in economic activity, the playbook by governments and central banks across the world is really to start easing, you know, through monetary and fiscal stimulus, right? You know, the ultimate goal being just to put money back into the hands of the consumers, you know, jumpstart spending and really try to get the economy humming again. And so, you know, this was indeed the case again with, with the COVID-19 situation, you know, across the developed world, at least, um, and in places where governments were in, you know, sound enough financial shape to do so. But what's unique and interesting about this pullback and slowdown in economic activity compared to some of the other ones is that at its core, you know, this was really just a healthcare crisis to begin with, you know, and not a traditional economic downturn, uh, at least originally. You know, heading into the pandemic, the consumer was really otherwise in great shape. You know, the economy was in its 11th consecutive year of expansion, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis. 
you know, consumer confidence was at all-time highs. The market was reaching all-time highs. Overall, I think we could say that the consumer was in really good shape prior to 2020. Um, the economic impact and the fallout from the current situation was really self-inflicted, you know, by the policies and procedures um, that governments across the world put in place to varying degrees, you know, to try to control the spread of the virus and really to help avoid some of the anticipated strain that was expected to take place, you know, on the, on the global healthcare system. So really it's, it's a unique situation, you know, as a result right now, um, broadly speaking across most of the developed world, at least we're in a situation now where a lot of people's income levels have stayed approximately the same over the last year and a half, you know, through the downturn, either by being able to continue to work from home or through the help of government support and stimulus checks. But at the same time, a large portion of where this discretionary income would typically be spent, a lot of these places were completely shut down or operating in limited capacity over the last several months. You know, things like restaurants and experiences and travel and the like. What's happened is as a result, we've seen, you know, a huge spike in the global savings rate over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, it's up about 10 to 20%, you know, according to most measures. So, you know, broadly speaking, there's, there appears to be a lot of consumption firepower, you know, sitting, sitting right now on the sidelines, you know, at least across much of the developed world, you know, which accounts for more than half of global GDP. These consumers are in a strong financial position, flush with cash, just as things are starting to open back up again. So now really the question becomes how much of this excess savings will actually be redeployed back into consumption? How much will continue to remain on the sidelines and in savings, you know, just due to the scarring effect from the dramatic shock, um, you know, that we all just experienced over the last year and a half. So I think the way that this situation plays out is going to play a key part in the pace of the recovery, you know, going forward. So you're talking about progress and, and one of the most important things with regards to progress is vaccinations. And here in the United States, while the pace of vaccinations has slowed, more than 60% of the U.S. population has had at least one shot. Uh, and it would seem as if we're on pace for the goal of 70% of Americans by July 4th. We're seeing the return to sort of normal functioning in the U.S., you know, with restaurants opening up to indoor seating, masks becoming optional for those that are vaccinated, and sporting events returning to full capacity. It's important to note that the recovery continues across the globe, but at a varied pace with some countries remaining on lockdown and others fully open. Uh, specifically, what are some examples of how the developed market and the developing market, um, how companies are experiencing the reopening or lack thereof? Yeah, I think one obvious but really critical change and in inflection point, you know, that's really started to emerge over the last several weeks now, um, as you mentioned, you know, now that lockdown restrictions of ease and the vaccine distribution and adoption rates have started to, uh, you know, gain traction in a lot of different parts of the world. Um, but I think it's this idea of, you know, resumption in normal daily activity or what's sometimes referred to as consumer mobility. So, right, employees are starting to go back to work. Students are going back to school. Sporting events are back on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think people are finally starting to go about their daily lives again. You know, it's, it's like I said, it's a really simple concept and an obvious observation, but it has tremendous knock-on effects, you know, for the broader consumer economy um, and really the global recovery in general. You know, when consumers are out and about going through their daily lives, they're usually spending more than they would otherwise, you know, being cooped up in homes, sheltering in place and not spending at all. Um, so this really has, you know, started to accelerate, you know, here recently. But as you mentioned, the pace that this trend is evolving is different, you know, throughout different parts of the world. 
Uh, but I think one of our portfolio companies, Compass Group, I think it provides a good lens, you know, just into how, how quickly things are evolving, at least within the developing part of the world. So Compass Group is the largest professional catering service provider in the world. So professional catering can just think of the in-house restaurant operator in an office building, for example, or maybe the cafeteria operator on a college campus, or, you know, Compass also does, operates concession stands, you know, at major sporting events. You know, these are all um, businesses that, that Compass, you know, is involved with. But I think since all of these places require an in-person visit, you know, whether it's at work or school or, you know, a sporting event or what have you, um, I think this company provides a pretty good lens as to just how much in-person daily activity has resumed lately. So overall, if we, if we look at Compass's uh, current level of capacity, they're currently operating at about 70% of the level that they were before the virus hit. So still not quite back to where they were uh, pre-virus, but the 70% is a huge move off of the lows that we saw in March 2020 when the company was operating at only about 50%. Um, and we can see that demand you know, continues to improve every period on a month-by-month basis. And if you listen to Compass's management team, you know, they're guiding to a full recovery in pre-COVID level demand, you know, sometime within the next 18 to 24 months. Uh, so generally, you know, we can say that in-person activity and consumer mobility is starting to recover nicely, you know, in the developed part of the world. Um, but then we can take that and contrast that with some of the fundamental performance that we're seeing in one of our other portfolio holding companies, which is FEMSA. Um, and so FEMSA operates mainly in the developing part of the world, in Mexico, you know, mostly. Um, and the situation looks just a little bit different here. So one of FEMSA's biggest businesses is OXO. And so this is the largest convenience store chain in Mexico. So just think the 7-Eleven of Mexico, basically. But I think convenience stores also provide a pretty good lens into the consumer mobility trend, right? Because the majority of convenience store visits happen when people are out and going about their daily lives and traveling to work and school and other places, they're less of a destination trip. So year to date, if we look at OXO store traffic, it's still down about 20% from where it was pre-virus. And we really haven't seen much incremental change in this uh, store traffic number um, since the virus hit in March. It's, it's remained kind of steady at down 20%. Um, and there's a lot of different you know, factors that are probably contributing to this. Uh, for one, the lockdown and shelter in place rules in Mexico are still very strict, you know, compared to other parts of the developed world. Mexico has just had a much more difficult time controlling and containing the virus. Also, if we look at Mexico's government, they did very little in terms of the policy response to support its businesses or subsidize its consumers, you know, like a lot of the, we saw a lot of the developed world do. Um, the Mexican government just really didn't want to take on the debt, you know, that was needed to soften the economic blow from this virus and instead they kind of decided to just weather the storm um, and really try to recover naturally. And of course, on the heels of the, of the U.S. recovery as well, which is its you know, largest trading partner. But then I think lastly, also to add on top of this, you know, the Mexican economy was already in a mild recession prior to the pandemic hitting. So the consumer and the subsequent recovery is basically starting from a weaker position you know, compared to other parts of the world. So Overall, we can kind of see that the story and the pace of the recovery is evolving at different, different paces, you know, depending on what, which part of the world that you're looking at. And there's a lot of different moving pieces involved with this. 
Um, but I think the simple but really critical inflection point in terms of the resumption in normal daily activity and consumer mobility is really a key thing to watch going forward in terms of the pace of the economic recovery looking ahead. So my family and I have booked our first vacation in more than a year and a half as we've been on pretty tight lockdown and we're headed to the desert in July, which really isn't the best choice, but it's turned out to be very economical. Uh, what are you seeing on the international front with regards to both airline travel and hotel demand? And when you're looking at hotel demand, how do you account for things like VRBO? Yeah, when you look broadly across uh, the global markets, I would say generally there's been some signs of pent up demand for travel and leisure over the last few months. Albeit this demand has almost entirely been for leisure and vacation travel, and it's almost been entirely domestic. So uh, corporate travel and international travel, which account for a significant portion of the total market, you know, we've really yet to see an inflection point um, in these areas yet. But take a quick look at the airlines, for example. Um, at the low point last year, global airline travel dropped to as low as 15% of its normal capacity you know, during the worst part of the crisis. Uh, it's since recovered all the way back to around 60% of normal capacity globally as of April. But it started to kind of flatten out again over the last few months. And again, I think the lack of international demand, not seeing a return from that front so far is really one of the key reasons why. So in short, we've seen a snapback in you know, domestic leisure demand. Um, it's almost back to pre-COVID levels in many parts of the developed world, at least. Um, but almost no recovery in business and inter international demand so far. Um, the international travel may continue to remain depressed for some time, um, and really, you know, this is, has a large part due to just stricter border rules and possibly vaccine requirements, you know, needed to enter certain places, which may end up actually being the norm for some time going forward. Uh, you know, as of February, about a third of all international destinations are still completely shut down. Another third have partial closings and or mandatory quarantine periods. So, you know, most estimates right now point to a, about a four to five year period. So, you know, we're looking at probably 2025 to 2026 before, you know, borders are fully reopened and returning to normal again. Um, and a lot of that will, of course, depend on the vaccine efforts and the ability to control the virus. Um, and when we think about this from, you know, we think about the impact of this from an international investing perspective, you know, this is likely another headwind for the lagging recovery that's taking place in the emerging markets, which of course rely heavily on and are, and are really dependent on international travel um, and borders being open the most. So if we look at the hotel space, um, hotel demand is recovering well in most parts of the world um, also. But again, demand is mostly domestic and it's mostly for leisure and vacation. Um, business travel has really you know, yet to return. But if we look pre-virus, the global hotel occupancy rate was hovering at around 55%. Um, it fell down to about 37% for the full year in 2020, but it dropped as, to as low as 10% in, uh, in March, you know, in the worst part of the virus uh, just after it hit. Um, but as of April, you know, global hotel occupancy is now back to about 45% again, um, with the developed world, of course, leading the way in the emerging uh, markets still kind of lagging behind. But to your question, these numbers don't include, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer rental services like VRBO and Airbnb and the trend. Uh, but I would say the trend here is pretty similar in terms of level of demand that these uh, types of places are seeing and maybe even slightly more positive compared to the hotel space um, because, 
you know, these services tend to skew more towards the vacation and leisure trips and less towards the business travel, which again has been the part of the market that's been lagging recently. And then also just due to the safety aspects of renting, you know, a single family house, you know, versus sharing a, a large space with, uh, you know, a group of strangers and other guests, you know, like you would in a hotel, for example. So, but overall, I'd say that in general, the recovery has been pretty strong in travel and leisure so far. Um, and when some portion of corporate and international travel, you know, eventually, eventually comes back, you know, I think it will certainly add fuel to the pace of recovery. So everything that we've been talking about really been under the context of a return to normalcy or where we had been prior to the pandemic. But what we haven't discussed are the potential changes in consumer behavior. And I think that's really important. So what changes do you think we will see? Uh, or are we seeing those already with regards to the consumer, their behavior, and the impact on the overall global economy? Yeah, I'd say aside from some of the more obvious ones, you know, such as an acceleration in e-commerce or online shopping, um, which has been a trend that's been in place for some time um, and is likely here to stay, you know, some other interesting things that we can point to um, include this idea of healthy living and, you know, a healthy lifestyle going mainstream. So this was also a trend that existed pre-COVID, but never before has health and hygiene, you know, really been more front and center in people's minds uh, than it is right now. Um, I think people really had more time to focus on themselves while they're sheltering in place um, and are also just a lot more health conscious in general these days, you know, deliberately practicing healthier habits to avoid contracting the virus, you know, things like hand washing and social distancing and the like. Um, and there's, so there's probably a good chance that, you know, after practicing for a while, there's that a significant portion of these habits, uh, you know, stick longer term. I think it's also interesting to think about the potential long-term economic impacts from, you know, a change in consumer habits like this and what it could have beyond looking at just the near-term boost to brands and consumer um, items that are in this space, in the healthy living space, you know, longer term, you know, some second order effects from an overall healthier population could also mean, you know, maybe less of a burden on the healthcare system overall somewhere down the line, which, which would obviously provide big social and economic benefits, you know, longer term. Um, I think another possible area to highlight is uh, some of the advancements that we're seeing taking place in the healthcare tech space. So, you know, I think this pandemic may have possibly played a key role in changing where healthcare takes place in the future, you know, either due to convenience or for safety reasons. I think a lot of people who could receive in-home care over the last year and a half, um, you know, and some of this may end up being more permanent going forward. You know, the technology has certainly evolved to a point now to where a lot of different services can be completed in the home now, you know, without the need for an in-person visit. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out longer term as well. Uh, and then lastly, I just say from a company perspective, you know, companies may start to rethink their global supply chains going forward. You know, for the last several years, the trend has been to outsource parts of the supply chain to areas, you know, where labor is cheaper and the costs are more efficient. But now maybe the pendulum starts to swing back in the other direction, you know, where companies think about balancing and protecting against future shocks that they may face in the system, you know, versus up here cost savings. Um, so, you know, we've already started to see some signs of this play out pre-pandemic, you know, with the geopolitical trade wars, for example, you know, between the U.S. and China or, you know, some of the disruption that was caused from Brexit. But also, you know, there's also a stronger emphasis on ESG now, um, which has started to become more front and center you know, questioning things like is labor arbitrage or, you know, taking advantage of cheap labor actually a socially responsible thing to do? 
this has been a great overview of what we're seeing with the consumer, but let's bring it back to Diamond Hill. And so here we focus on a long-term outlook. It's at the root of everything that we do when we're analyzing a company and determining its current level of intrinsic value. Has the disruption from the pandemic changed the way we look for new ideas or has it altered our investment philosophy and process in any way? You know, it really hasn't overall. Um, in fact, I would say that our core philosophy and process doesn't ever really change, you know, throughout different stages of the market cycle, which I think is really a key advantage, you know, that helps lead out performance over longer periods of time. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, at Diamond Hill, we always keep a long-term view, you know, meaning that when we're trying to price a business, we're looking out at least five plus years, you know, and sometimes longer, you know, depending on the situation. Um, and we're using a normalized, you know, through cycle earnings number, you know, so not this year's earnings, not next year's earnings, or even the next year's earnings number, you know, which I think can be somewhat common, you know, when you look across the industry. Um, when we're pricing a business, we're trying to look through the current market conditions and really determine, you know, what it's worth through the full market cycle. You know, I think looking at things this way can be a real advantage, you know, especially during times of extreme you know, market price volatility, like we saw over the last year and a half, for example, you know, I think in the near term, emotions and other factors can really, you know, cause some dramatic swings in stock prices in both directions. Um, but at the same time, I think often these swings in price don't actually reflect an equal and equivalent move in a company's intrinsic value. So to the extent that we can price business as well and keep a long-term view, I think really oftentimes these periods of extreme price volatility can actually be a benefit to our process and an exciting time to invest, you know, because a lot of times they often lead to attractive investment opportunities. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, keeping that long-term view also helps us make informed, you know, rational investment decisions when prices are moving quickly, you know, and helping us avoid getting caught up in the current, whatever the current market sentiment is. So, Though where the virus may have had, you know, somewhat of a more immediate impact on our process was probably in prioritizing the different areas of the market, you know, that we were looking for new investment ideas. You know, as we discussed, certain sectors of the market were more impacted than others and, and saw more price volatility than others. You know, industries like travel, for example, which was, you know, directly in the eye of the storm of, you know, the pandemic and the lockdown restrictions that came. Um, and so when prices move as quickly as they did in some parts of these market, you know, we found that over time, these are typically good places to look for mispricings and market inefficiencies and, you know, and try to find some new potential investment ideas. And so, you know, when that this latest round of volatility hit throughout 2020, you know, I think we did shift some of our immediate focus into some parts of these market and, you know, just within international strategy, I think initiating on intercontinental hotels and compass group are some pretty good examples of this. But overall, I would say our process hasn't changed and doesn't ever really change, you know, throughout different points of the market cycle, which I think is one of our, you know, really unique advantages at Diamond Hill that hopefully helps lead to outperformance when we look over longer periods of time. Well, Chris, this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective as a member of the international team here at Diamond Hill, uh, looking outside of the U.S. and the entire globe. I think it's really important uh, to get that perspective. So. Uh, thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.